Welcome to Celebration Church's podcast. We hope this helps you to know God better and trust Him more. To learn more about Celebration Church, please visit us at celebrationchurchlive.com. We're wrapping up our sixth week in this series called uh, Poetic. And uh, we have been looking at some of the poetic nature of the language of the scriptures. Um, and so as we've been marching through, there's a ton of them that we've not been able to cover. There's a lot of them we've not even been able to touch on or to remotely look at. And so, but um, in this series, um, we kick off a new series next week. Um, but in this series, as we're wrapping it up, I felt like we wanted to, to end with this one, which, which it's tied in. This metaphor is tied in so deeply into our worship, into our expression. This is the most controversial metaphor Jesus used. He had lots of people quit following him as soon as he brought this one out and began to teach and utilize this metaphor. It is, it is his most controversial, um, most controversial metaphor. And so we've saved it to the end. But if you got your bulletin, you got your bulletin, app, however it is you're going to track along with us, that we have led off with this idea every week that God uses the things that we see and know to help us to understand him, even though God is bigger than the things that we can see and know. He's more wonderful than the things that we can see and know, but he so lovingly meets us in the space where we're at to help us to understand him. And just handles and, and deals with the things that we engage with. And so we've already looked at Jesus being our rock. We've looked at Jesus being a shepherd. We, we've looked at, at him being the, the potter and us being the clay. We, we've looked at all of these different things. We've looked at light. And today we're going to look at a metaphor of bread. But we've led off with this passage of scripture in Romans chapter 1 verse 20 it says for since the creation of the world God's invisible qualities his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse from the very beginning from creation of the world God has woven who he is into all of creation so that if we'll just glance in any direction we'll begin to show some interest in okay there's got to be somebody bigger and more powerful than me out there um I don't know his name I don't know who he is but there's got to be somebody out there and as soon as we begin to do that there is a clear path that ultimately leads us to the truth of who Jesus is. As we begin to decide, man, there's just a God out there, it just, we begin to see that there is a clear path on that space. And as we've been getting into that, we have looked at, and they may have it handy for us right now, our picture of our cylinder that we've looked at every week in this. And we have this cylinder, and if you sh- look at it from one angle, the shadow it casts is clearly a square you look at it from the other angle it is clearly a circle each of those things is true but we don't really get to the truth until we stitch them together until we combine them together the truth is more complex than than the true things that 
you can see in any given moment. And so, and that's with God. God is so much more wonderfully rich and complex that it takes multiple angles to begin to get him. And each of those things in and of themselves are true. They're true. But we can't just latch a hold of one thing that's true about God and ignore other things that are also true about God that are holding us back from the truth. And so the whole point of us hitting this every week, looking at the cylinder over and over again, is to put it down deep in our hearts. What I wanted for you as pastor more than anything in this series is to shift the way we think about God. When we go to the scriptures, go to it daring to say, Lord, show me something fresh in you today. I know I don't know it all. I know I don't know it all. That is simply what I want us to have a hunger to know him deeper. And knowing, learning something new about him doesn't all of a sudden discount the true things we already knew about him. But we need to go to the scriptures, not just to meet some sort of religious obligation to spend some time with some holy writings. No, to break those open so they can do what they were intended to do, to reveal him, to show him so we can understand who he is. And because the scriptures are written, because it's... It's written down. It's not pictures. It's, it's not sculptures. Um, it's words. And so word pictures are created with metaphor. So it makes sense that God would use metaphor to take something we see and know and connect it to him so that we can grow in a deeper understanding of who he is. And today, we're going to look at the truth that Jesus is the bread of life. That Jesus is the bread of life. Well, you and I, we don't have real pushback on that. We're not bothered in deeply on that front because for us, especially as Protestants, we very much engage with the truth that God was teaching this as a metaphor, that this was brought as a metaphor. But when, as we're going to get into it, when Jesus begins to immediately bring this to it, there was some significant pushback. Let's look at John chapter 6, verse 35. And it says, And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, we understand that he's not talking about physical nutrition. He's not talking about actual hydration that you can take your hydro flask and you can kick it to the curb. You're like, I don't need to carry gallons of jugs of water with me anyway. What, in fact, what happened? I grew up and I never carried water with me ever, anywhere, and did just fine. There's, there's an entire generation who is like, stay so hydrated. They carry water with them everywhere. I, I realize we've been in a drought, but it's not that bad. And so, and, and so, but everybody just carries jugs of water with them everywhere they go. And so I don't know if, if God is prepping us for something. Eh, that's a little creepy to think about. And so, um, but, uh, 
But we understand that. That's not what saying that you're never going to thirst again, that, you know, you're never going to need to take a sip of water again. It's these deep things, these things that our soul craves, that our soul finds a thirst for, that we end up having the, the desperate cycles of our life where we, where we chase accomplishment after accomplishment and find them hollow. We chase relationship after relationship and we find them painful and empty. We chase these different things over and over and over again and our soul is as hungry and thirsty as it ever was. And he says, you know what? You come to me and you can actually be satisfied in your soul, your innermost being, the thing that drives you and gets you out of bed in the morning. It doesn't have to be trying to fill a void. It can be all of a sudden operating out of being filled where you can now have vision to go out and fill other people, not just live your life trying to fill yourself, but now you, all of a sudden you can fill others. That was the paradigm shift Jesus wanting, was wanting to bring. And as we get deeper into John chapter six, we're gonna look at verse 47 and he says, very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. How beautiful is it that Jesus just lets us know that us believing in him, that's where we step over from death to life. It is by faith that we step over from death to life. Those who believe have eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and yet they died. I wanna pause right here because I'm not gonna take it for granted that everybody knows what manna is that's in this room or watching it wherever you are, you are. but manna, um, to not be t- too, uh, too elementary here, uh, was, is referenced back into the Old Testament, back into Exodus in particular, and we see that the p- people of Israel came out miraculously out of Egypt, and they did not have a place to live. They didn't have land, and they were gonna eventually go into the promised land. There was some tension because they were grumbling and complaining and had some problems, and and they actually ended up living 40 years as nomads, as they were going around in the desert, and God, in his loving grace, provided for them because they could not farm, they could not, they couldn't, create it and they weren't going to go and rob and pillage to be able to take God provided food that showed up on the ground manna from heaven every day now this wasn't fresh baked loaves of bread uh, there was this stuff that looked like when I was a kid that's what I thought like there was literally walked out um, and there was like Mrs. Baird's laying right there and I was like you know, all right, and so, and so, but manna was actually, it says it was like coriander seed, it was a little small, and it just ended up like dew, it was like dew on the ground, but instead it was just this little fine stuff, and they, and it tasted like wafers and honey is what it said, it sounded like pretty good to me, honestly, and so, um, but you have enough of anything, and you get tired of it, you get done with it, you're like, I'm done, you know, after, after three meals of one thing, we're out of it, I mean, they had this every meal, every day, for 40 years, and so they even griped about that. But this manna that came from heaven was God's direct provision. No striving, no laboring, no working, no cooking. They gathered it up and they simply had to receive it. And that's what he's saying. He said, your ancestors had the manna, this miraculous bread is what they referred to it. And manna actually means, translated means, what is it? It's the original whatchamacallit. It was, a, it was a little sweet, and they didn't know what to call it. Was, what, 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 I don't know. And manna means, what is it? And so every day they had, what is it? 
and so for dinner, <laughs> breakfast and lunch. So they have that, and they're in the wilderness, and yet they died. Uh, but here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. And all of a sudden now, they begin to have a little problem. He's saying, I was sent from heaven itself. I came down from heaven. He says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now, he is making sure that we understand that his, the gift that we are to receive is what he is going to physically do with his body. Why? Because very soon his body is going to be nailed to a tree. He is going to, to take the sin of the world on himself. He is going to be the, be the sacrifice for sin for all eternity, his physical flesh. This isn't about pay attention to my teachings. This isn't all of his teachings were pointing that he was going to be the one who was going to bring salvation to the world, his physical body that was going to be beaten, buried, and resurrected. He said, you need to pay attention to what's happening with my physical body. You're going to have to lay hold of that. That is what he is referencing. He says, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Immediately, they all of a sudden shift it to actual literal cannibalism. They're like, they had been tracking with him on all the metaphors. He had talked about Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How I long to gather you as a hen gathers its chicks underneath its wings. They did not think, oh, okay, now he's, he's going to begin to cluck and scratch and he's, he's going to grow some feathers. They didn't, they didn't make those comments. They, they tracked with all of the other metaphors that he had to say. He taught with parables. He taught over and over again. But now when it gets down to what this is really about, Jesus' assignment to be the Lamb of God that took away the sin of the world which is this beautiful metaphor for exactly what was going to happen. Why? Because there was annually there was a lamb that was sacrificed for, to take care of the sin of the nation of Israel for one year. And Jesus was about to do it, not for just the sin of the world, but I mean, not just sin of Israel, but for the entire world. And all of a sudden, now they're pushing back. Now they're saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And what he was letting them know was that you, to be able to get this, you're gonna have to let this impact the inside of you. How does bread make a difference in your life? It has to get on the inside of you. It has to get on the inside of you. I've never seen anybody who was hangry grab a loaf of bread and cuddle it and go, oh, I'm so much better. I'm just, oh. Yes, I'm good now, all right, we can keep going. No, when you're hangry, something's up on the inside. It's making changes to the way you're dealing with people on the outside. The people who know you best know something needs to change on the inside. And that the bread only makes a difference when you let it on the inside of you. I've been very clear for years that I am not an athletic person. And so I decided for my 
35th birthday, I wanted to do something that was athletic. And so even though I'm not an athlete at all, and so at all, and so my, the athletic thing I thought I could do um, was just to be bullheaded and complete a marathon. I'm like, I just have to put one foot in front of the other and not give up. That's what I have to do to complete that. It doesn't require athleticism. It requires stubbornness. And I think I can channel some of that. I think I can do that. And so I began to train and get ready for this marathon. And it was happened out between, a, you basically ran from uh, edge of Odessa to Midland and then turn around and run back. And, um, and so I began to train, began to get ready. The day came. And I had never run a full 20 plus miles. The most I had ever run was, um, was 14. <laughs> and so, um, and now I also decided I was gonna run the 26.2. And so sure enough, start out, I run, I get out there, hit the halfway mark. I'm a little ahead of my pace, um, which was not fast by any means, um, but it was my pace and I was a little ahead of it and I felt pretty good. Um, and so I was hitting the water stations. I was hitting all that, but I was avoiding food. I did not want to eat food um, because I did, honestly, I didn't want to go to the outhouses they provided along the way. And I'm like, I've never had to eat um, in route before. I'm not going to eat. Well, I crossed mile 17 and my body was depleted. It was done. And I had not, I had slowed down and I just kept rolling. Well, then I get to pushing about mile 19 and mile 17, I had had to walk and it just drove me up the wall that I had to break stride and I had to walk. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm gonna go. And so I decided to go. And then at mile 19, I was like, I can't believe I have 7.2 miles of this mess left. And there was a guy. And by this point, everybody had like that deep into the race. Everybody had, had gone and they were, you could, there weren't packs anymore. I could look straight. I could not see a soul. I could look behind me. I could not see a soul. I may have been the last person. I don't know. But there was nobody behind me, but there was nobody ahead of me either. So I'm going along and then sure enough, there's somebody handing out water and there's somebody handing out some M&Ms. And I'm like, I need something. I need some of these M&Ms. So he's got a little Dixie cup full of M&Ms. Well, I've never done this. I didn't know what you're supposed to do. Um, I'm not an athlete. I'm a snack elite, man. Uh, you hand me some M&Ms, I'm going to say, yep. I, can, I know what to do with some M&Ms. And so I'm running up, and I could tell I didn't do it right. Because he goes to pour out of his Dixie cup, and I just took it. I just took his cup. But I thought he was giving it to me. And then I realized, no, he was going to put a handful into my hand, and I was going to eat them. And I took his supply, and I didn't care. I just kept going. And he's looking at me, and I'm, I'll just, I just keep going. So then I start eating these M&Ms out of this Dixie cup. And I did not know that, that chocolate could hit your bloodstream that fast. I'm telling you, that was the most amazing M&Ms ever. But you know what made the difference? What made the difference is getting them inside of me. I could have taken that cup and called it my own. I could have had those M&Ms and I could have sat there and as I was doing it, I could have named each one. I could have, hi, hi Marvin. What's up, Morty? 
you're kind of big in there. You're Maximus. And I, all of a sudden, I, I, I could have named each one. I, I could have been on a pilgrimage to Hackettstown, New Jersey, and gone to Mars Factory and done a tour and seen how M&Ms were made and known all the stuff about M&Ms. None of that would have done me any good until I took it in. I could have known every detail about every M&M ever made. I could have known all the facts and stats. None of that mattered until I took it in. Jesus was letting us know he is the bread of life. That this isn't about a religious game where you know religious facts and you do religious things and, re- and you go to some religious building and you hear some religious holy man say holy words over you and then you have a holy experience and you go out. No, you, what you need to do is wholly receive him in so he can wholly change you from the inside out. That is why he is the bread of life. That is what makes the difference. That is what this is. It isn't about learning a religion and doing a bunch of facts. Yes, do we want to learn more of who he is? Absolutely. Does that help us? Absolutely. But if we don't receive him in, call him our nourishment, you are what is going to be the foundation for my soul. You're the one that's going to help my spirit step over from death to life. Then it's pointless. It's pointless. All the rest of it is absolutely pointless. In fact, this was the beef that Jesus had with the religious leaders over and over and over again. In fact, he calls them out in Matthew 23, 25. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish. Oh, man, it sparkles. It's beautiful. It shines. It's spotless. You clean it. Put all this energy into you, clean it, but the inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. The inside is just as nasty and messed up as it ever was. So the, this is about letting him clean the inside. Letting him change the inside. That is what this thing about Jesus being the bread of life is all about. Here's the thing. Is it was, it's so beautiful because there's so many layers to this truth, especially to the Jewish nation that understand Jesus being the bread of life. Let's go ahead and understand this truth, that it was crazy, it was outrageous that Jesus said that we're to eat his flesh and to drink his blood. But it's a metaphor. It is a metaphor with real, genuine implications We're to genuinely say what your flesh accomplished is what nourishes my life. Your blood spilt is what gives me life. It has real, genuine implications. And that's what Jesus was driving at. But his detractors, they were just, they were not getting it. They weren't hearing it. In verse 53, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now this is after the the verse before that they've already given him pushback. And I think Jesus is saying, okay, you're going to be that ridiculous? You're going to think I'm promoting cannibalism here? Okay. No, the the power of the metaphor is that powerful. We're just going to go ahead and drill down. In fact, if you don't eat it and you don't drink the blood... If you don't embrace the full power of the metaphor, you're missing it. 
You're not going to have any life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me, just as the Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father. He goes ahead and lets us know how this is paralleled. He's not saying, I'm eating little chunks of daddy over here. No, he, he clears it up. He said, just like I am sent, the Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate the manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. See, the truth is in saying this, that Jesus boldly said that he is the source of eternal life. We go on in verse 59 and he says, and, and he said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. And on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? And aware of that his disciples were grumbling about this. Jesus said to them, does this offend you? If this thing saying that, you, that I'm gonna be the source of life, if this offends you, well, what, what happens next? What happens next? Then if you see the son of man ascend to where he was before, which his disciples are going to see. It's documented in Acts chapter one that the spirit gives life and the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are full of the spirit and life. He's like, get the spirit of what I am saying. Get a hold of what I'm saying. He goes on in verse 66. It says, from this time on, many of his disciples turned back and they no longer followed him. Him pointing this out, driving home this truth was so hard for them to handle that a bunch of his disciples said, no, can't do it, I'm out. They were missing what he was saying. Then he turns to him and says, you don't wanna leave me too, do you? And Jesus asked the 12 and Simon Peter answered, said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He didn't say, no, Lord, we fully get what you're saying and they're all dumb. Where are we gonna go? You have the words of life. We've, we've seen too much. We witnessed Lazarus raised from the dead. We, we've seen too much. We've, we've seen the feeding of the 5,000. There's something true to what you said. And even when we don't understand, we know you have the words of life, so we're gonna stay even when we don't understand. And that is the mark of a true disciple. But then he goes on to explain. He goes on to unpack this for him. And the truth is, is the explanation is honestly, it's even more radical and crazier and wild than the declaration because Jesus was defining how that they may be made right with God. And for us to fully understand what I'm about to explain here, we're gonna have to um, 
uh, to take a moment and just imagine a scenario, okay? We're gonna have to imagine a scenario because what Jesus is about to do, he's about to take the Jewish peoples, these guys, his disciples, most sacred holiday, and he is about to completely redefine it, okay? So for us, um, let's think about Christmas. Christmas is coming up. Um, anybody like Christmas? Okay. As soon as we hit the burr months, man, we were in Sam's the other day. They already had one Christmas tree up for sale. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, there you go, Sam's. They got the Christmas ribbons. It's already started. So Christmas is around the corner and it will be here soon. And we love Christmas. We understand Christmas. We celebrate the birth of Christ, Jesus coming, the fulfillment of the prophecies. And we understand these things, that Jesus is the reason for the season. And there's the world has kind of taken and utilized and do their own thing. And, and we're like, okay, sure, have your Santa stuff, do all of your, you know, holiday things. But we understand as believers, we know what this is about. Okay. Let's say that somebody that has been a respected um, figure, um, somebody who's done a ton of ministry and is genuinely respected. And so the, an easy one to grab is to say Billy Graham, who just recently passed away in the last couple of years and, and lived an incredible life of ministry, a great legacy, what counseled multiple presidents on both sides of the political aisle, um, just impacted every continent, um, is just no person in our generation has had a bigger footprint for Christianity than Billy Graham. And let's say that right before he died, Billy Graham took his closest followers and he says, you know what? We've seen what Billy Graham International has done and we've seen these different things. And, and honestly, this Christmas, um, this Christmas, what I want you to do is to just in light of understanding of how much we have pushed forward the truth of who Jesus is and, and led so many people to the Lord, Actually, Christmas is now, at Christmas is now about me. And so now what I need you to do is I need you to take that message and carry it forward after I've passed that, that Christmas is about Billy and it's Billy is the reason for the season, not Jesus is the reason for the season. Now, some of y'all are already ready to fight. Billy didn't say that. Don't get mad at him. He didn't say that. But we're like, no. No, you don't mess with you don't mess with Christmas. <laughs> you crazy? You don't mess with Christmas. This is about Jesus. This is about all my favorite memories. This is about my family connections. This is about. Are you kidding? You don't mess with Christmas and Jesus with his disciples as he is there the Last Supper at Passover. He is messing with their most sacred holiday. It's Passover. There's a reason that Easter jumps around every year. You know, we always know when, when Christmas is going to fall because when we've chosen to celebrate it, we know where, where Thanksgiving is going to fall. You know, it's always going to be on a Thursday. The, and so we understand these different things. But, but Easter moves around because Easter, we always celebrate it in connection with Passover. We always connect it in celebration with Jewish Passover, and that's why it's a moving target, because Passover moves around. And so when Jesus is there, and he is sitting there and taking the bread, because it was that's part of the celebration. To this day, Jews will celebrate Passover, and they have the, they have the cups of wine. They have the unleavened bread, and they remember when God supernaturally took the blood of the lamb that was applied to the doorpost 
and that their families were protected and the death angel passed over their households and then they walked into freedom the very next morning. They celebrate that. That is what this is about. And Jesus is saying, guess what? Even that moment was about me. Even that original Passover was prophesying and shadowing and pointing to what I would ultimately accomplish for the entire world. Let's look at Luke chapter 22, verse 13. It says, and they left and they found things just as Jesus had told them. And so they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now he's eaten multiple Passovers with his disciples, okay? Remember, they, some of them have been with him as long as three and a half years, and this is an annual event. But he's like, I've been ready to eat this one with you. I've been ready to eat this one before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until I find fulfillment in the, until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And these, these wonderful Jewish little boys who were ready to have the Roman oppression off, they're like pumped. They're like, yes, hey, we're finally going to overthrow the Roman government. We're finally going to be done with this. We're not going to have, this is the last Passover under oppression, and we're out of here. They are tracking with what he's saying in their mind. They're like, yes, we're getting rid of Rome. And after taking the cup, and they're like, yes, take that cup, Lord. And, and he gave thanks, and he said, Take this and divide it among you. Okay, yeah, yeah, I'll be so excited. For I tell you, I will not drink it again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Oh, awesome. And then he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. What? I don't know what the Passover Seder is supposed to be. This is about remembering what God did for the nation of Israel. And now you're saying that when we have this, this bread is about you? Now, it's pretty remarkable that they didn't leave with everybody else when Jesus talked about you have to actually, actually take his body in. You have to actually receive him as nourishment. What's amazing is they didn't storm out of this upper room when he did this. And then all of a sudden, guess what? Passover is about me. Passover is about what I'm about to accomplish. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. All of a sudden, Jesus is taking every Old Testament reference, everything and saying, all right, the, what you thought this was all about was all sorts of religious activity, all sorts of legal compliance, all sort of observing holidays and special traditions. It's not ever been what it's about. It's always been about what I would do for you. My body, my blood given and spilled for you. The whole thing was an image. The whole thing was a metaphor. The, in fact, the sacrificial system was a, ongoing living display of what was actually going to transpire, that Jesus would actually step in and be the Lamb of God that took away the sin of the world. His actual flesh would be given for the life of all mankind. And all of a sudden now, thousands of years of history makes sense. 
as he breaks that bread and he says, this has always been about what I would accomplish. It was never about what you were supposed to do for me. It was always promising you I was gonna come do something for you. Every sacrifice that was made was never about you doing it for me. It was promising I was gonna do it for you. Every one of these Passover meals wasn't saying, remember what the, the miracles of old. It was prophesying to the greatest miracle that would ever come. It was what every one of those moments was always pointing to Jesus. It was always pointing to Jesus. So right here. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Celebration Church. We hope you'll stay connected by following us online. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.